Richard Beck, thanks so much for coming on the uh, Reconstruction Podcast. Before I get into the topic today, I just want to ask you, just kind of point blank, to mm-hmm. tell me about your relationship with Jesus and be as in-depth as you want with that question. That's a big question. <laughs> My relationship with Jesus. Um, the word that comes to mind is like obsession. Mm-hmm. I, I think I've been uh, fixated and obsessed with and uh, just from from my very earliest memories um, with with Jesus, I remember getting a small child's Bible when I was young and reading through like the Sermon on the Mount and just wanting to be like Jesus, like like wanting to live that out as best I could. It, it was a very unsuccessful experiment, obviously, <laughs> but it showed a very early fascination with who he is and what he taught. And I had been chasing him probably obviously for my for my entire life and the implications of that have been huge and sprawling um but but it is an obsessive kind of thing and and i think that in the best possible way like he sits at the very center of my existence and i wake up thinking about him i go to bed thinking about him and i and i kind of he's kind of the or the the, the, the gravity well that I constantly kind of orbit around. So when I think of myself as a friend, as a, as a teacher, as a, as, a, as a human being in the community, as a, as a husband and a father, um, like I'm constantly checking in on him to get my bearings. Um, so he's my compass in many yeah. ways. Yeah, I really like that. I think like I know that I and several people I've talked to on this podcast uh, can kind of hyper intellectualize Christianity and it can become without meaning to like Jesus is just kind of this like um, really cool thought experiment. Mm-hmm. And I think approaching it with that sense of awe and obsession helps mm-hmm. to helps to keep, I guess, the pulse in the relationship with Jesus. And instead of having it sort of like a like a dusty, interesting book on a shelf. Or something yeah. Like I, for me, it's been more like a romantic love relationship than anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would say I, and, and this might sound naive or whatever like that, but I I'm in love with him and, and, and that love is what keeps me in that kind of orbit. It's not an intellectual fascination much at all. Yeah. You gotta get one of those bumper stickers that's married to Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I know typically that's like the, the Christian like college response was like, do you want to go on a date? It's like, sorry, I'm dating Jesus, you know? No, no, you know, I get that. And, and I understand how saying I'm in love with Jesus can, or, or, or can, or does fit into kind of some discourse about Jesus mm-hmm. and how, um, there's been some criticism about that kind of Jesus is my boyfriend kind of thing. Um, but, but I would say the idea of a romantic love relationship with Jesus is not like this current evangelical weird thing. I mean, mm-hmm. this goes, if anybody knows anything about the contemplative tradition, yeah, all, it's all the school. saints have described their relationship with Jesus as a love relationship. And so, I mean, you, you look at um, Teresa of Avila, Catherine of Siena, you look at St. Francis of Assisi, mm-hmm. like all the saints have, have described that relationship as a love relationship. So I, I do have some concern about saying I love Jesus out loud because the current discourse in these kind of deconstructing um, conversations typically frame that as sort of some sort of weird evangelical youth group yeah. um, strangeness. But it's not strange at all. It's very old and ancient. Um, and um, so anyway, that's the way I would argue yeah, that. Yeah, that's one of the things that 
when you said it, it did make me think of St. Francis. I took a <laughs> class on the sort of Christian and Islam encounters throughout mm -hmm. history. And um, we it took a long time focusing on this time that St. Francis has spent with um, this group of, of Muslims and, and how he saw the sort of romantic aspect of their relationship mm -hmm. with God and Islam. And he admired that and seemed to borrow a lot of that in his writings about God. Um, but yeah, that's something I really admire when I read stuff like, you know, Rumi, who mm -hmm. I, I believe was a Sufi mystic. Um, but yeah, I read that sort of romantic quality. And um, like I said, yeah, I think that just helps keep like something like tangible, like almost visceral is probably not the right mm -hmm. word I'm looking for, but just something like real into this, uh, the blood that flows through the like academic pursuit. So it's not just, oh, it's fun to think about. Um, yeah. I really like that, though. Yeah, and I think there's some wisdom there for people who do deconstruction because I think in deconstructing conversations, it is it is highly intellectualized. Um, and so, as a psychologist, I, um, I I I do want people who are doing deconstruction to kind of pay attention to their hearts. Mm -hmm. um, as Pascal once wrote, "The heart has its reasons, which reason knows nothing about." And so, I do think there are truths that are revealed to us about reality that come to us and in the effective emotional register. And sometimes when we turn God into kind of an intellectual puzzle to solve, um, that can erode our faith because it's become disassociated or dislocated from the affective, even romantic aspects. Yeah. Um, I want to ask, jumping off of all that, mm -hmm. going into what I want to talk about today, which is prayer um, and what it means to have a relationship with prayer, um, just starting off, what if you could like briefly describe what kind of role prayer has in your life and what that looks like for you. This might be a weird way to say it, but I really think prayer is about like the fundamental geometry of your life. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things that happens in the modern world is that the self can become, can kind of be morbidly turned in on itself in a posture of self scrutiny, a posture of self, exploration or even self-actualization and we kind of get locked in our own skulls and for me prayer is fundamentally working that geometry from a from a morbid fascination with my inner life to a turn outward to connect with the reality um, outside of my own head so to me fundamentally that's what prayer is it's it's about a pot it's, it's a geometric posture of outward looking so Anne Lamont has a great book title that says thanks called thanks help and wow and she says those are the, th the three fundamental prayers gratitude thanks help right um ne needing needing to rely on a strength so we, we talk about this in the addiction communities where we have to rely on a power greater than ourselves so help and then wow reverence and awe and and wonder mm -hmm. and so all of those are are have a have a geometric posture of outward turning outward facing and receiving a gift, thank you, right? Re receiving a moment of transcendence or wonder or, or awe, and, or also uh, looking for a help that comes to me beyond my own meager resources. So to me, fundamentally, that's what, that's what prayer is, that it's reworking the geometry of the self to put us in a posture that where we can receive these gifts of grace. Yeah, I like the idea, which I, I think you're right, which is prayer is us kind of looking outwards, but I... 
came from uh, atheism that like the typical new age like plays with a lot of Eastern um, religions without like knowing a whole lot about mm -hmm. it. And then as I practice like meditation and trying to understand going inwards, going inwards, going inwards, then I, as I started coming back to Christianity, I guess I was trying to make sense of, well, this is the exact same thing. It's just different. We're just using different words, um, which I don't think is true. I think I was trying to maybe make something mm -hmm. coherent that wasn't. And so I was saying, well, our connection to God is really our, it's really God as he lives in our hearts. So we're just going inward and we're not actually like when I was reading in one of your books, you talked about this sort of external thing. And mm -hmm. I was like, that's weird. He keeps saying external. Cause I think of, I think of prayer as going, going inside and, and looking. Um, yeah. Do you think you could speak to like maybe the complications that would arise and confusing that with yeah, the no, internal? Yeah. I, I think prayer is a little, I mean, I, obviously there's been an interest in meditation and, um, kind of the therapeutic analog of that that we call mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And I do think there's an aspect of like mindfulness or meditation that um, is related to prayer. But both of those practices kind of are asking us to step into a, um, a, a kind of an, a non-performative posture of awareness, right? Mm -hmm. So I draw my attention to my breath. I, 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 I'm mindful of my surroundings. And so I, I become grounded and I become, I become present. And, and the goal there is to kind of be in an ego space where there is no ego, right? Mm -hmm. To just, if, as I, but you'll notice by being present, I'm, I'm being embodied. I'm, I'm feeling my body. I'm drawing my breath. And so it, there is a, there is a move inward there, but it's also a move to also become available to the, the surroundings and where I am, where I am currently. So there's a paradox there. Um, but also in like loving kindness meditation where you're, you're uh, picking kind of a mantra that is uh, generating good, compassionate feelings, you know, towards all of creation, the natural and to others, right? You're, you're, yes, you're going in, but you're going in with a goal to create a sense of unity or, or, or oneness. Mm -hmm. and, and the thing I would add that's different about Christian prayer from meditation or mindfulness, there's a similar initial move to go inward, but it's an inwardness to be present to my, my surroundings currently. Um, is that in, in the Christian ontology, I'm not just trying to dissolve the ego and merge with kind of the cosmos that fundamentally going back to what we were saying earlier, I fun fundamentally feel like I'm reaching out to um, a relationship mm -hmm. that there is. I'm not just being mindful of my breath as a means of relaxation. And I think a lot of people are turning to meditation and yoga and mindfulness therapy as just kind of a self-help technique, as, mm -hmm. a, as a form of self-care, which is great. But, but in Christianity, prayer isn't just a form of self-care. It's fundamentally going in to hear a voice, mm -hmm. um, to, to make contact with a, a, sub, a subjective personality that, that we would consider the ground of being. And so I think that's the difference in the Christian metaphysics than something more Eastern is that we feel like the ground of being is fundamentally a person. Mm -hmm. um, and that person is interested in a relationship and I'm seeking out that relationship in, in the act of prayer. Yeah. I think what first struck me about hearing, well, prayer and reaching out to God, it's this external thing what made me apprehensive towards it was the idea that I think I confused it with separation that it's like, Oh, if God's outside of me, 
then God is not with me. Like he's somewhere else and I have mm-hmm. to get there. And so that was my like, I think initial kind of defensive critique at it. Um, but now as I understand it, and you might correct me if I'm wrong, but now as I understand it, it's not that, you know, I think we're, we're kind of flipping um, like um, epistemologies as we're understanding, well, yes, God is with us, but in this different way we're reaching out to him it's not as if there, there's a there's a sense that we can sort of sort of turn in words in ignoring him, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of reaching out to it doesn't it doesn't I guess equate with separation. I think that was something I was confused about. Yeah, no, no I, I I understand how the. And that that might be a limitation of the ge- geometrical metaphor, right? But but we are in a sense. Um, it, so the turning inward isn't less about like turning inward to myself as much it is is it is is to create a a pause in my stream of consciousness where I'm distractible. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much I'm turning inward to myself as much as I am I'm turning a- away from maybe environmental stimuli to then make a space or a room where I can be approached or reach out towards this encounter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one thing I wanted to ask about, I heard you talking about orthodoxy and orthopraxy at mm-hmm. one point. Orthopraxy, is that a term you came up with or borrowed somewhere else? No, no, that's been out there. So okay. there's, or, you know, there's orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and you can even, as we talk about orthopathy. Okay. So orthodoxy is what most of us are familiar with is, is right, right belief mm-hmm. and so holding the right dogmatic uh, assumptions about the christian faith mm-hmm. and we spend most of our time and i think a lot of people on a, a on a journey of deconstruction are focusing on that like what what do i believe do, and so it's a very mental game about getting beliefs right so how should i think about scripture how should i think about the atonement how should i think about the devil how should i think about miracles or how should i think about the metaphysics of prayer right so so i i try to come up with the, the best ideas i can um but orthop orthopraxy is right practice and, and that that also kind of comes from an eastern idea where you talk about practicing meditation but we don't often think of christianity as a practice we think of it as a set of dogmatic beliefs mm-hmm. but christianity can also be viewed as a set of life practices and and one of those practices can be a practice of prayer um but there's also other practices of practice of kindness and generosity um practices of faithful community and and so on and so forth so so the idea there is for me at least in my season of deconstruction when i when i was having trouble believing all the things i could still settle into the practices Mm -hmm. so even though i might not have all the the answers to my questions these practices are good and they're and they're healthy so for example i, I was talking to one of my classes the other day about church church attendance and, and church can be triggering for many people and we can sit there in church and hear either song lyrics or sermons um or, or prayer requests that we we find confusing or even problematic and so we can sit there and say this entire hour or 90 minutes is like this big intellectual puzzle. And, and do I agree with, from an orthodoxy perspective, do I agree with everything that's being said in this space? Or you can say, 
you know, church pra- church pra- attendance as a practice is, is putting myself in a space where I I am asked to pray, where I am asked to sing and praise God, where where I where I listen again to the story of Jesus and I'm reminded of the su- the surprise of it all. Uh, the interrupt I can be interrupted again by by that story and uh recalibrate myself in in light of that story and also i'm just bumping up against some pretty amazing people that's the thing about churches is there's some people that are doing these just unseen and unnoticed things but you look at them and go like like they're amazing human beings Mm -hmm. and then and that's not to say that everybody in church is going to be just a delight right there's a kind of a um fidelity to just showing up and getting along with people who have very different religious beliefs or even political beliefs mm-hmm. and doing the hard work of like having a friend group that just isn't built around my own preferences and my own interests, but rather a diverse collection of people. So so I can look at my going to church as a practice that has a variety of positive outcomes rather than this thing I believe in or I believe all the things that are being said, yeah. especially during a season of doubt and deconstruction, you might not be able to assent to everything, but if you see it as a discipline that that is shaping a variety of good holy virtues, then you can see the value in it. Yeah, I think I think for me, what I'm starting to understand about it is that it can be like a marriage between uh, a discipline and a I guess I guess faith would be the best way to put mm-hmm. it. But I remember Alan Watts talked one time about meditation when I was kind of deep in the bowels of trying to understand mm-hmm. meditation and and every day I would go do it and it became like really tedious and I just was sitting there being like this is so boring I really don't like doing this and I listened to this lecture that he was giving and he was talking about um, if you don't like meditation then you're doing it wrong like you're supposed to like it it's not supposed to be this discipline that you kind of force yourself to do it's something that you're supposed to do because you want to do it um, and I ended up stopping doing it for a long time but i at first as i was you know and i i ask about orthodoxy versus orthopraxy because it feels like it it corresponds a lot with my relationship with prayer which is that Mm -hmm. as i was coming back to christianity i sort of had these things i wouldn't compromise on and i was like i have to understand it before i can do it and one of those things was prayer and i spent i think about two years studying prayer i read a couple books um by tim keller and Mm -hmm. one that i went to the well they gave me this little like um I think it was called a praying life. It was like this, I don't know, like a boot camp for understanding prayer. Yeah. And I had a lot of facts about prayer and how people have prayed throughout time, but none of that made me feel like I understood it enough to be just comfortable doing it. I was still confused about it. I still felt almost goofy doing it. Um, and it wasn't until someone in my life was like, well, why don't you just try it out for like a, a week or two? And I was at the time studying Orthodox kind of tradition and I was reading about the the holy hours of prayer and I thought, mm-hmm. well, it'd be cool to like kind of just steal five of these because I didn't want to wake up in the middle of the night. <laughs> but I was like, I could just like steal yeah. five of these and just do them mm-hmm. every day. And like the, my compromise was they could be a 20 second prayer as long as I just get something done. And I realized like how quickly, like what you said about there's like, there's reasons the heart has that reason can't understand that it's like, there was something I understood that was completely ineffable that it's like, oh, mm-hmm. I got it. And and like what you said about making it this discipline in the interim between the sort of, I guess, 
not necessarily emotional highs, maybe that, but also just kind of intellectual understanding of Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, there's this girl who was on uh, Joe Rogan a couple years ago who like won the Moab 240, which is this run through the desert, it's 240 miles. And um, she was talking about it and he was saying like, does it just like suck the whole time you're running for like three days? And she said, no, it goes in waves and the waves continue throughout the entire three days. So anybody who's run 10 miles understands like with with running, you'll have a couple miles that just suck. But then it just then you kind of get the second wind and you feel good again and you feel great for whoever, you know, however long. And then it stops and then it sucks again. But if you just know during the time that it sucks, like just don't stop running, it will it will feel better. And um and it, and, it, and it kind of continues in that way where it's this kind of marriage between well, it's the discipline of don't stop running. And as long as I can just get to this next part where, where it feels good again, then it's I'm not having to use that willpower. It's kind of turning willpower on and mm -hmm. off. Yeah. Um, but I see that because I I get very um, meticulous about the I get very defensive about my kind of special beliefs that I hold. Mm -hmm. And there was one in particular about something something that was being said at my church uh, about towards the end of when they were reading the scripture and saying, and this is, this is the word of the Lord. And, and I had, I had read and listened to this whole thing about the terminology of the word of the Lord. And I was like, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. And I remember having a whole conversation with my girlfriend, Grace about it. And she was like, yeah, but that's like, you're never, you're never going to be like, Oh, ev absolutely. Every move that my church and everyone in my church makes, I'm totally comfortable with. And it's like, so some things are just about showing up and being able to, commune together uh -huh. and go i don't i'm not going to see eye to eye on everything but i don't have to raise an eyebrow at everything that i'm not particularly subscribing to no and i think there's a degree again that's a virtue right that's a virtue of humility and generosity intellectually so so we have to be careful with the kind of the the the, the kind of the narcissism of deconstruction where somehow everything that is said in this space has to agree with my particular my particular orthodoxy yeah as if like i've gotten there I've right exactly and and so there's a there is amongst some deconstructing kind of people kind of this like brittleness they're they're very fragile you know that that they uh, like like i get when i was in my season of deconstruction people would write me and be like i, I how can you go to church because you know there are people there that believe in x you know and I'm like, well, you know, like I'm not that fragile that if somebody has a belief that's different from me, that somehow I, I can't be in the space and and tolerate their their presence. But but you'll notice this kind of prickliness that exists among the deconstructed to where if there's any ideas out there that they see as remotely problematic, then they just have to just exit the space. Mm -hmm. But I do think there's a degree of kind of spiritual maturity and resiliency. And, and I think it's more because of humility and generosity to kind of say, no, no, like I like. There are people that believe that um, I, I, I have my own reasons why I don't. But but that doesn't cause me to end this relationship or, or, or exit the space, because otherwise, if you keep doing that, if you keep exiting spaces where everybody believes exactly the way you do, you end up by yourself. And that and that's part of the temptations of the deconstruction journey is how you end up in a little cul-de-sac of your own mind back to the geometry thing. Yeah. You just keep turning inward and inward and inward until you have. And it's very pharisaical because at the end of the day, what you create for yourself is like a pure belief system. Um, and but you you do it by excluding 
any any perceived heretics to your to your own particular orthodoxy. So it still has the kind of an expulsive aspect to it. Yeah. But back but back to the idea of um entering prayer i get how somebody goes if you're going from like disbelief to just jumping off the deep end of prayer how you can sit there in a space and close your eyes and turn inward and go like what am i supposed to do now and i would just suggest that for most of church history people use things like you have mentioned fixed hour prayer and and structured prayer so in my life as i turn back into prayer um i i use things like um the book of common prayer from the anglican tradition morning and evening prayer uh, in the Liturgy of the Hours, uh, from the Catholic tradition, um, and also from the Orthodox tradition, um, the Jesus Prayer, and also prayer tools. So the Jesus Prayer is like, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And they just say that repeatedly over and over. And I also use things like prayer ropes from the Orthodox tradition uh, and prayer beads from liturgical traditions as well to kind of physically have an object in my hand that can kind of keep me focused on on those prayers so so i don't i do think there are tools out there that can help one practice their way back into a prayer life um then um just kind of sending people out there on their own and go like you know spend 30 minutes alone with the lord and go like i don't know what i'm supposed to be doing here yeah yeah i mean that thinking of where the discipline meets sort of the 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 longing for prayer like there are so many times where trying to keep a consistent uh, prayer life looks like Psalm 77, where he's like, when I think of you, I, I just, mm-hmm. I moan and, and I feel like you've forgotten to be compassionate. But then there are some times when I'm really excited. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I'll have the little reminders to go off on my phone about these holy hours of prayer. Yeah. And, um, and I'll be kind of like looking forward to it. I'm like, I'm, I really want to do this. I'm yeah. excited to spend this time. But it's funny that it's like those waves. It just sort of goes in these waves, and it's important to keep the practice for me. I think because it's it's like when when you're spending time working out or whatever. So when you go to the gym, like if I went to the gym tonight, I would see no matter how much I worked out, I would see probably virtually no difference between when I walked in and when I left. But there but there is. It's this small difference that, that's just immeasurable, and I'd see virtually no difference every single day. And if I just let that make me stop because well, nothing's happening right now well then i would never be able to build anywhere because i didn't have faith in the process yeah um anyway i, I really like that but i also want to move on a little bit to ask you ask you about i know you wrote this book about enchantment and mm-hmm. and it's a word that i feel like i've been going back to a lot and it's like when you buy a certain car and you see everyone has that car and you're like oh my god everyone just bought the same car <laughs> but i just feel like the word enchantment and the conversation of enchantment has been um all around and I just want to ask, in the process of culture losing its enchantment, if you could just speak a little bit to that and and how you think maybe that might have affected prayer. Because I know for me, leaving Christianity, I, I became the, I think, typical, you know, I didn't hate Christians, but I think I became a typical, you know, I was I was kind of felt scarred by Christianity and so it was easy to get very cynical and like yeah they do all these silly things it's so goofy and I can't believe that I ever did that so as I came back it was really hard to kind of grab back onto that because it felt like I had I had understood how silly this was for so long 
Yeah, so the word enchantment comes from, it was coined by Max Weber, but it was popularized by um, a philosopher named Charles Taylor, who wrote a big book called A Secular Age that kind of put this on everybody's radar screen. Yeah. And, and, and the argument goes is that the, you know, 500 years ago, the world was enchanted. And, and by that, we mean kind of a robust, consistent awareness that the world is a magical and a supernatural place. So the world was filled with um, uh, magical creatures, uh, magic and witchcraft was a real thing, God was real, the devil was real, right? So enchantment describes that kind of felt sense of the, of the reality of the supernatural. We lived under this kind of holy canopy in a, in a, in a world that was more than just materialistic. And, but the world, you know, since the age of reason and the enlightenment and the rise of technology, we've moved from a, an enchanted experience with the world to a, to a disenchanted experience with the world. So, so rates of agnosticism and atheism are on the rise. People are deconstructing. Uh, people are not attending church as much as they once had. And, and so our, our worldviews, our metaphysics have become more materialistic. And so uh, uh, an increasing dismissal of the supernatural or the metaphysical. And so obviously prayer is an enchanted experience. It is presuming and stepping into a sacred expectation at least. But in, as we go through a season of disenchantment, then obviously prayer is going to feel um, like, like uh, something magical, like it feels like a spell being cast, or it feel, like it feels like this medieval importation of something supernatural into a world where like, I don't know, I don't know if anybody's listening. Mm -hmm. I don't know how, I don't know how it works. Um, and so, yeah, I do think a lot of people um, dealing with disenchantment, dealing with deconstruction are trying to figure out how they deal with the enchantment that is prayer itself. Cause prayer is a, is an enchanting kind of thing, or at least presumes that there's more to, right. There's somebody out there on the other end of the phone call. And if that's hard to believe in, then this practice can seem like uh, pretend or make believe. And so mm -hmm. I think that triggers a lot of questions about prayer, especially petitionary prayer, because a lot of the a lot of the deconstruction that we deal with is God's action in the world. Um, we have a very kind of materialistic causal cause effect kind of think, way we think about the world, like clockwork. And so the only imagination we have is that God is somehow going to tinker with the clock or stop the clock or intervene and um, why he answers this prayer and that prayer kicks up a whole host of questions and those questions can get so heavy that we can't we can't pray because we have a freight of interrogations about the about the thing and we can't kind of release ourselves and surrender to it yeah that was one of the biggest things for me i know that there was a an episode of comedians in cars getting coffee where seinfeld had uh it was Ricky Gervais on and he was talking about why he didn't understand how religious people pray. He said there's this old joke about, um, you know, Jews in the Holocaust. He dies, goes to heaven and he's up there just hanging out with some people and he tells a Holocaust joke that's a, like a little bit in poor taste. And then God says, well, that's not funny. And he goes, oh, I guess you had to be there. And like the joke is built around yeah. like how can someone be praying and asking, you know, God, I need to find mm -hmm. where I parked. I can't remember where I parked. Can you help me find it? It's like yeah. you're praying to the same God who didn't intervene in, mm -hmm. in these like great tragedies throughout time. And I remember when when I heard that, that was when I was first kind of entering this deconstruction. And I 
I was immediately like almost embarrassed about prayer. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I feel like mm -hmm. I've never asked myself that question. And that was one that I, it, it gave me a very confusing relationship with uh, petitionary prayer. Mm -hmm. And I guess how, <laughs> this might be too much to ask, but but how how do you kind of see that? Well, I mean, that's a bigger, I mean, it's interesting because when you pull on these threads during a season of deconstruction, the thing that often gets pulled back into the space is the problem of suffering. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've, so we tugged on prayer, but we ended up with the Holocaust and where is God in suffering? Yeah. Um, and, th and that's fair. Uh, but, but, but that is a different kind of conversation and it's not, but, but prayer is kind of one on ramp into that desolation and trying to trying to understand that. Yeah, there, there is no fundamental answer. The, the one thing I would say that that I think is helpful is I, I do think we tend to work with a metaphysical imagination that God is like Thanos with the Infinity Gauntlet. Like that's for those of you that don't know the Avengers, Infinity Wars <laughs> and Endgame. But but Thanos is this powerful cosmic creature. He gets the Infinity Stones, puts him in a gauntlet, and literally with this gauntlet, with a snap of his finger, he can end this reality, create a different reality, right? So, so we have this kind of vision of kind of metaphysical power, and that prayer is fundamentally petitioning Thanos to snap his fingers to create a different kind of reality. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and as long as petitionary prayer is working with the Thanos infinity gauntlet metaphysics, I think we're always gonna be struggling with the question is like, why is, why, is, why is this cosmic power not snapping their fingers to fix this situation? Right. Um, and I, I, I would just suggest that maybe we need a different, a different metaphysical imagination about God's relationship to creation and also wonder if the our relationship to God isn't fundamentally an, an, an appeal to a power, but an a, approach of a presence. I think that's the Christian response. I, I want to say that that can be deeply dissatisfactory, unsatisfactory, dissatisfactory, unsatisfactory, very unsatisfactory answer to the problem. But I think that's the way Christians have said, uh, we don't know why God isn't intervening. Mm -hmm. But yet we we claim that in Christ God is present even in hell itself, and so prayer is turned to God in the midst of that pain or that suffering. And so the idea that Ricky Gervais would say, "Oh, you hadn't been there," I think that's where people of faith would say, "Oh, but he was," you know, "Oh, but he was." If we had the attention to see that God was present even in those spaces. And so I think of somebody like a Maximilian Kolbe in the Holocaust, um, a saint of the Catholic Church, where uh, there was an escape uh, in one of the concentration camps. And so they said, we need a we need a prisoner step forward to replace everyone that escaped. And they were going to put him in this like underground cell where they were going to literally starve to death. Mm -hmm. And so they forced some guys to volunteer. Well, not even volunteer. They forced them to go forward, and one just fell apart. Just started having a panic attack. I have children. I have a family. I can't do this. Mm -hmm. These are all Jews. And Maximilian Kolbe was a Catholic priest, and he said, "I'll take his place." And and so he said, he he literally replaces himself with this man and goes into the in, into the the cellar with these people, and they all starved to death. And he ministered to them, this Christian to these fellow these Jews. Um, until they died and he didn't end up dying 
um, and they needed the, the the place to to do some other horrible things, and so they eventually just drug him out. He was the last survivor, and they, I think they made him like drink carbolic acid or something like that, and they they just had to kill him to get rid of him or whatever. And so you you look at a story like that and kind of say, no, God was present even in those spaces, right? God was through um, people like Colby. Um, was there and and trying to trying to leaven even that dark space with some sort of kindness even in the midst of that evil is that a satisfactory answer no it's not no it's not but yeah. it's it's a different answer than than looking to the heavens saying please snap your fingers and make all this make a different reality yeah um r- rather than saying where are you even in the midst of this darkness yeah i think i think it's a good point that god's presence doesn't always meet our expectations of what it's supposed to look like like i think when i was a kid i mm-hmm. do have like <laughs> i haven't put it in terms of the purple thanos usually think yeah, of yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> the guy with the beard but no it's funny i think you know it still works out the way that i am expecting yeah. this sort of immediate change and i'm expecting well even if i don't see this immediate change it, things should be light it shouldn't be cloudy you know that should be very bright and happy mm-hmm. and smiles on everyone's faces and that's what it looks like when god is present um, but I think you, you tell a story like that and you realize like, oh, like God's presence doesn't always look happy and shiny. Like there's, it can still exist within, I think the darkest parts of, yeah. of what's around us. Yeah. And the other thing I'd say, I mean, I know we're talking about the problem of evil now is that Ricky Gervais and atheists, um, and materialists have their own problems with evil. Okay. And, um, like, like it's not like they have a, their metaphysics is, Right. They can point fingers at our problem with evil. How could a good and loving God allow this to happen? Mm -hmm. But in a materialistic perspective, um, they have their own issues, which is the problem. Why? Why why shouldn't the Nazis do what the Nazis do? Like that. Like, why why do we why do we call what they do evil? Like, where 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 is the moral uh, transcendent vantage point that stands over in judgment of that? Like, Mm -hmm. like. Evil is a sense that somehow the cosmos and creation has fallen away from some idealized good that should be and ought to be the case. But that that expectation is only there if there if that is true, um, because if it's just a materialistic kind of Darwinian struggle for survival, um, like if we're all just atoms colliding in an empty cosmos then none of that has any sort of moral weight at all so i just want to just want to play fair with the materialists like they got their own problem of evil no nobody there's nobody on the planet right now theist or atheist materialist or supernaturalist that doesn't have a problem of evil yeah so we should play fair and admit that 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 evil is just this radical boggling of it's a hemorrhaging of the soul, a boggling of the mind. It's the fly in the ointment, and we're all processing that um, in in the ways that make metaphysical sense to us. Yeah. Well, and I think prayer, I'm going to simplify it right now. I think it's more than just a posture, but I'm going to use that for a minute. Like, the reason the problem of evil, I think, for me, in my reconstruction, is important to talk about with prayers because it, it went so hand in hand with it because it was the mm-hmm. biggest thing that turned me off of prayer and the biggest hesitance I had as I came back to it. But um, I think it was Jordan Peterson one time who was talking to like Stephen Fry, who was talking about the the problem of evil and how, you know, 
he said, like, God might be real, but the first question I would have is, like, why are the children dying of cancer and the Holocaust and all these things? Mm -hmm. and, and Jordan Peterson's answer was, well, I just, I've noticed in my own life and in the lives of people I know that no matter how bad things are, you can always make it, like, un just incredibly, incredibly worse based on this posture of, well, think like this kind of nihilist posture of just, well, things yeah. are just all going down. Everything's going to hell in a handbasket. And it's like all that posture does is make what is already bad just infinitely worse. Yeah. And it's like if if that's the case, then maybe in the fact that it does that, that is the proof that or the evidence rather that that is wrong. It's an incorrect posture because yeah. of the fruit that it bears. And so I guess I take that and go a step farther to say, like, if prayer is nothing else um, but a posture, then I think just being able to posture yourself against the nihilism, the possible nihilism of the world and sort of the darkness mm -hmm. of the world and being able to posture yourself, considering all the facts. Um, Wendell Berry said that in this great poem. He said, though you've considered all the facts, yeah. practice resurrection. Mm -hmm. And I sort of think like though i spent this this time trying to understand prayer it wasn't until i really started doing it that i just realized like whoa this changed everything and it's sort of beyond and i know that sounds like such a cop-out people are like well explain it if it was so if it's so great why can't you just explain in words why mm -hmm. it's better it's like because there's something holy about it that's completely beyond my explanation yeah and one of the things you said in your book that that i would tie to that that was so connected for me the the hunting magic eels book that mm -hmm. you had when you were talking about it, it re felt really good for someone to admit the idea of petitionary prayer not working in a sense, um, in the in the Thanos yeah. sort of way. But you said prayer might not work, but it hallows. Do you know if you could yeah. speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I think you know to connect with what you're saying with that question. You know, I think where Jordan Peterson is really good to help people understand some things is that we typically turn to metaphysics as scientists, like we want cause effect explanations mm -hmm. and so we, we we turn to metaphysics to say why is there evil or mm -hmm. why does a good god or or does petitionary prayer work so we're constantly framing metaphysical questions in the idiom of scientific cause and effect and that's just a bad fit mm -hmm. you know somehow if i can get the metaphysical you know causes then i can explain these these effects but Peterson's good in saying that, no, that metaphysics is primarily involved in creating a forum or a, an arena of moral action. Mm -hmm. we, we have these beliefs not to explain, but to create an arena of moral action and, and performance. And so the point you were making about nihilism doesn't create a very good arena of moral performance. It just the, the, the rules of that game, that none of this matters, and might as well look out for yourself, like the rules of that game, to win that game just makes things worse. Because if everybody just kind of looks out for themselves and mm -hmm. none of this matters, then that's poor moral performance. But the Christian arena of moral action, that evil exists and that should be resisted, and that you are participating in a fight that will ultimately be victorious, that puts you in a very different posture toward evil. That, that means like, even if I fail here, um, at least my actions are contributing to some positive good, 
right? So I practice resurrection in the hope that this will make things a little bit better. And I'm working in the metaphysics of the Christian faith and resurrection help motivate and sustain that moral exertion. So it's just a better moral game to be playing. So, but when you get around to do, do the metaphysics explain evil, no. They they don't they don't explain evil. They they create the stadium and the rules and the referees, and then you you are put on the field to play a game. And the metaphysics is the game. So what is the better, more beautiful, more true game to play? And that's where I would say Christianity wins hands down on the problem of evil. It gives us the best story of evil on offer out there because it because it, it gives us those things we just said. It, right your small actions matter cosmically they make a difference even if nobody notices um and that there's an ultimate victory coming forward and that evil really exists and should be you know should be fought tooth and nail like that's as far as a moral posture toward evil i can't imagine a better story out there you know that gives us and i think prayer is similar so prayer um, might not work, but it hallows. And by that, I mean, when we think about prayer as like some sort of technology of cause and effect, and we wonder if petitioner prayer works, again, we're, we're using that scientific technological machinery to try to describe something. But by hallowing, I mean that it's an old word that just means um, to make holy or to recognize something as holy and something as reverent. And, and, and we need that in life. We need to we need to create kind of sacred moments and a carve out a space here and say what 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 occurred here in this moment or this particular concern of mine um, is kind of separate and apart from the mundane um, everyday occurrences at life. So the example I give in the book is um, and is how I've I've had even atheists tell me that they pray. And they typically tell me they pray when they go and visit somebody in the hospital or somebody's just told them that they have a cancer diagnosis or somebody's just revealed a huge pain. Um, and they've just kind of gone on an emotional journey with this this person over coffee or or, or whatever. And, and as they part, they want to hallow, right, and recognize what happened is – that just wasn't a normal conversation. That wasn't just catching up about, you know, the basketball game last night. Um, this wasn't just like work chatter around the water cooler. Like, like we kind of got down to the human experience. And you want to say that was special. And so what words do we have to, to, to recognize that, to give it the sacred weight that it deserves? And, and, and we don't have any language other than the language of prayer. Mm -hmm. Right. We can say, oh, well, thank you. Thank you for that. This was really meaningful to me. We can say, I'll, I'll be thinking of you like we all we feel the inadequacy of that. And so we just are drawn back to this enchanted language where we say, listen, um, I'll be I'll be praying for you. Um, uh, and because that seems like that language I will be praying is the language of enchantment. It's the language of hallowing. It's the language of the sacred. And it marks that experience. And so that's where, that's one on-ramp onto prayer. Like it, it, prayer is causing you to step into sacred moments that if you don't allow yourself to step into those sacred mo moments, then life just becomes um, just one event after another, right? One, one Netflix 
Netflix binge after another, um, one conversation after another, and life becomes monotonous and flat, and and it loses its existential uh, drama. The, the, another way I'd say it is like we want our lives to be Shakespearean. <laughs> like we, we we do want a dramatic aspect to that. If we don't have a kind of a, a Shakespearean plot to our lives, then life can feel pointless and meaningless and shallow. And so prayer becomes one of those ways of thickening the plot by bringing us and drawing us into ultimate things. And I, I don't care if you're an atheist or materialist, everybody understands that hunger for that. Mm-hmm. And everybody feels the absence of that in their lives, the desire for that, that being caught up in a drama bigger than just my petty everyday problems. Yeah. 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 I think it, it's like, uh, <laughs> thinking about a, a movie or a book when you find, if you were to isolate one single line that seems maybe out of context, then it's like, there's a lot of pieces of life that are like, well, we're part of this bigger story, but this doesn't feel like that. Like if we find some random line in the book and then he went to the restroom yesterday, it's like, this doesn't feel connected to the rest of this story. Like you said, but we want it. I think for me at least I, I've recognized that in in what it means for me to to hallow in in praying is to remind myself that I'm connected to this this huge story and like what you said like the the things that we do actually matter and they have weight and gravity that sort of reflects throughout the cosmos mm-hmm. or throughout throughout eternity um, and these are these grandiose things I remember like when I um, first started really coming back to Christianity it was 2020 and um there was these moments I started having that were so weird I I guess you could say they were like um Halloween was being forced upon me where I would wake up from like a nap or so you know we're all staying at home all the time and so um I remember I didn't have a window in the room I was staying in at the time so my circadian rhythm was getting all messed up and I'm just like napping at random Mm -hmm. times during the day and I would just wake up in this sense of sort of existential crisis, just totally randomly, I would be doing whatever, watching TV mm-hmm. or hanging out with a friend. And then I go take a nap and I wake up and I'm like, what is going on? Like in life or in eternity? Mm-hmm. I have no idea what's happening. Why are we here? Why is nobody talking about that? And it suddenly yeah. was just such a confusing and big thing for me. And it happened pretty consistently um, as I started kind of reapproaching Christianity. And I felt like that was sort of this this call deep inside me, the sort of longing to, uh-huh. to pursue something that, that hallows. Yeah. Now I, I think some of us are, are wired that way. That's very much my experience. I think some of us are very sensitive to the, the, the metaphysical infrastructure mm-hmm. of our lives. And right. Like, like we, we, we want to connect the dots between our deep sense of reality and what reality is to my emotions and my my moral performance and that some of us who are sensitive to that are heightened to dislocations between the two and so as, as and I've seen that a lot where people go on a journey of deconstruction so they have these kind of Christian sensibilities of uh, of seeing 
value in the world and moral, you know, being a being concerned about justice issues and mm-hmm. seeing the dignity of all human people and and having hope and joy in whatever circumstances and expressing gratitude and reverence and right. So they have all they have this whole moral and emotional package. But then as they deconstruct their metaphysics, it becomes more materialistic and more therefore kind of nihilistic. And they they begin aware that suddenly now I don't have a metaphysical infrastructure to support my Christian emotions and my Christian feelings. And you begin having these kind of panics that does any of this matter? Does it now? Not everybody has that though. Like that's a kind of a rare thing. Like, like you, your, your comment about like, why does anybody notice this? Some people do mm-hmm. a lot of people though. I just think, I think for a lot of my students, they, they notice the metaphysical vacuum more in like a felt sense of like boredom and distraction. Mm-hmm. So they, so they, they sense that lack of hallowing in their lives, but it's not a panic. It's not an existential panic, um, but more is a, just a, a felt sense of like life is just aimless and drifting. So I, I would argue that it kind of triggers people differently. A lot of people are distracted. We're either distracted by entertainment culture, social media. We're either kind of bored and we don't have anything compelling. Like we've lost that Shakespearean drama. So life doesn't feel compelling mm-hmm. to us anymore. We feel bored and drifting. Or there's those that like you or me know kind of a, a bit of a panic response because we realize that we're trying to be like hopeful nihilists. And we realize that that's just not possible anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, that, the, that the nihilistic metaphysics I'm being drawn towards um, doesn't um, is not going to be is not going to create the arena of moral action that I, that I want it to. Um, so I'd say from panic to distraction to boredom are your kind of three forks in the road when you realize that you've gone down that path. Yeah. Um, I want to ask, I don't know how to frame this question, right. And this might be kind of a, uh, it might not go anywhere, but I'm I'm just curious your thoughts because it's something that sort of I've been chewing on it for a very long time, um, as are I'm sure a lot of other people. But the in in the Gospels, when when Jesus spends this time praying before you know in the garden with mm-hmm. with God, um, I think I read a scene like that, and I, you know, as I try to understand the Trinity, it's it's so far beyond me. So there's pieces that I try to fathom, but then so much of it is ineffable. But but then I go, well, they're three and then they're one. But then there's this part where it's like, are they separate? Because because Jesus is talking to God and he's like mm-hmm. asking him things. He's like, hey, can we do this? Can we do that? And it's like, does that is that not redundant? So I guess what it makes me think is, do I misunderstand the relationship between Jesus and God the Father? Or do I misunderstand prayer and what prayer is supposed mm-hmm. to be? Um, so I guess my question is, is what do you make of that? Is this something that Jesus prayer in the garden of Gethsemane? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're going to delve into the mysteries of the Trinity and, and Christology. Uh, so this is just my take on it. My, my take on it there is that you're not bearing witness to like the, the Trinitarian life, um, uh, as, as it maybe exists you know, outside of the incarnation. So what you're seeing there isn't, there is a window of the Trinity, but what we're there, what we're there seeing is um, the incarnation. That is to say that the, the son of God is also Jesus of Nazareth. And what we're seeing there is 
the bringing into alignment of the of the of the of the human the created we're seeing there so the way the way the church fathers saw it is right right by uniting god's self the trinitarian life with the creation so a connection between creator and cre- uh, created is reestablished and that in jesus christ um a uh, uh, harmony right kind of that re- the, the the fall or the the rebelliousness of of the created order is 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 uh, brought back in line. He heals. He heals that. He heals that rift. And so I would say that rift was most acute at Gethsemane. Right there is a sense where the creature is the human aspect of Jesus is, you know, um, resisting, and he ultimately surrenders that struggle and 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 accomplishes a victory there mm-hmm. and becomes the perfect. Right, um, son of God. He learned, as it says in Scripture, he learns obedience by surrendering. So I see, I see there. I don't see there a struggle between uh, God the Son and God the Father. I see a struggle there with um, Christ incarnate struggling and then winning a victory of ultimately surrendering. You see on the cross, into your hands I I commit my spirit, and right. he and he, not my will but your will. So to me, what you're seeing there is that is the struggle. It's a it's not a trinitarian struggle. It's a christological structure struggle between the the human and divine aspects of of Christ. So it's, I think it's more christological there. Okay, and I think that's what prayer is then, right? Yeah. Prayer is our wrestling with the will of God. And, and and trying to come to some sort of surrender to that will and discernment of that will. Um, and so in that sense, it's not that God was struggling with God's self as much as it is the human struggling with um, with the source of being. Yeah, I think that points to something that uh, something that I've been growing to understand about Jesus, which is that like it's very easy to look at the story of Jesus. Or maybe it's not very easy, but it's something that that I have I have found myself doing and, and seeing as as almost um, like there was a there was a time when Martin Sheen of all people um, wanted to identify with the homeless, so he left his mm-hmm. like you know million dollar mansion in L.A. and spent one night like under a highway just by himself and just camped out so he could understand the homeless, and then the very next like morning he got up and went back to his million dollar home and i think it's easy to look at the story of jesus that it's like like you think that you know what it's like to be us now because you came and, mm-hmm. and spent a second in the same position as us but it's like you knew what you had to go back to you knew where you came from it's you weren't really there and so i think i see a scene like that and especially like how you're explaining it's or as i'm understanding it's like jesus struggling with himself in that prayer struggling with the human aspect of himself and it's it's like no, he actually, he actually did have to go through this this complication of there was this other will that wanted to veer off, like like ours in our human lives yeah. typically want to veer off from the will of God. Um, yeah, so I I guess that makes sense seeing it as that sort of internal struggle that he is is reaching externally to to God to resolve, I guess. Yeah, right. So, so yeah, God's in Christ. God is trying to reestablish this kind of, um, kind of an ontological bond that had been severed in the fall mm-hmm. um, and couldn't be restored from our end alone. Mm-hmm. And so, God becomes hum- humanity to kind of reconnect um, 
and 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 therefore in Christ, uh, the kind of a, a, a glue had a, had occurred between um, God, the Creator, and the creation, and He becomes that kind of bridge or hinge. And so, what you're seeing, I think, in Gethsemane is right. This, this that, that that wasn't effortless, right? Mm-hmm. That there was a a submission to the Father that that healed that that kind of ontological wound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Um, so now I'm going to the questions that I um, I'm asking all the guests because I'm curious to see the different answers. Okay. But, uh, I want to ask you what you think is most pivotal to Christianity. Most pivotal? Yeah, it's a big question. If it makes you feel any better, I've gotten, I think every single answer has been different. Well, that's good. Most pivotal. You know, I mean, I think there's a lot. I I would say to me, the most pivotal thing is, um, I want to put this in the, keep in our conversation with practice, is intentionality. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we can talk about beliefs or whatever but i think one of the things that is most missing at least in the practice of christianity is the kind of the, the degree of intentionality it takes to go back to the thing i said at the very beginning to um orient your life around this particular story if this story is true if jesus is really raised from the dead then um one must intentionally right reconfigure one's life around that that metaphysical claim and so to me, I think that's one of the things that's often missing with, with Christians is uh, a degree of uh, orientation of the mind and intentionality in living as if this is actually true. Mm-hmm. And, then, and, then, and then spending your whole life on the adventure of the implications of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's a first take at it. Attentionality. <laughs> yeah, I like that. There was something, uh, Brendan Manning, I don't know if he said it or if he was quoting someone, but he said something about if you really believed that Jesus... Um, died for you, loved you, and the Lord of hosts is on your side, you should inform your face. He said, because there's people walking around living as though, you know, anxious about the future, mm-hmm. worried about the past, and they're so stressed out about everything. And it's like, but if you claim to be a Christian, then what you're supposed to do is practice this idea that, like, the creator of the universe is on your side. So, like, who who is supposed to be against you? So if right. we're going to be intentional about that, like, and I, I struggle with that. I struggle with a lot of worry, and I know that like, I kind of have to to refocus myself. There's something that um, we said in the the last podcast that I heard Rob Bell say in a in a sermon when he was like, "I wish we could just interrupt our friends when they're talking about all their worries and stuff and go, hey, um, grace and peace. Do mm-hmm. you remember grace and peace? Yeah. He's like, this is the way that co- sort of Paul would open all his letters that I that I just love. That was like. Hey guys, before anything, just remember grace and peace. Yeah, um, yeah. I I really like that the the idea of being intentional because it's easy to sort of as if our Christian beliefs are like a filling out like our Facebook statuses, like oh, like this is my date of birth, this is my relationship status, this is like what I believe in doctrine. I'm you know a Baptist. I'm this. Mm-hmm. I'm this. I'm this. And um, all right, that's it. Yeah, I don't have to like. That isn't going to come out in, you know, my orthopraxy. It's not going to come out yeah. in like what I'm doing or being intentional about it. It's just like mm-hmm. it fills the slots that were there. Yeah. Christianity must be intended. Jesus must be intended. And and a lot of us don't ever intend it. We might believe it, but we don't intend it. Mm-hmm. So the last question is, um, well, and I guess I want to maybe 
lead the witness here a little bit. But okay. my last question is, what advice do you have for me as I continue my journey of reconstruction? But you were talking about something earlier that reminded me of um, a talk that I never got to hear all of uh, that you gave about summer and winter Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, my girlfriend's in your class, and she had mentioned you talking about this one time, but I have I had never actually got the chance to hear you like go in depth about it. Yeah. So I was curious um, if you think that that would relate to because you know there's some people that i think it's really necessary for them to go through reconstruction and some it just isn't yeah no so that summer winter christians comes out of some research and writing that that i've done and it the it's pushing back on what i call kind of this um what i'll call kind of like a an antithetical model of faith and complaint by complaint Mm -hmm. i mean the doubt the deconstruction the questions the the the, our laments in the face of the problem of evil, right? the things we've been talking about. And, and there tends to be kind of a working as, assumption in churches or in our own minds um, or in Christian communities where that complaint is antithetical to faith. That, that if, you, if you say those questions out loud, if you deconstruct, if you um, have doubts, uh, if you scream at the heavens, then if you go through dark nights of the soul, then that, that, those are all symptomatic of faith problems. Mm-hmm. And, and the trouble with that is, is that is it, is it, it puts the deconstructing person on a very lonely journey because the the assumption from the community is like, hey, you say that stuff out loud, you're just going to kind of make everybody uncomfortable, and so you just go like, I guess I'm just a, a, a weirdo. Like, I guess I'm the only one that has these questions, but you're not. But the but it's a it's been a, the culture has caused all of that stuff to go subterranean. Um. The, the 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 model that I try to replace it with is this summer winter Christian model where they're, they're on one dimension is kind of an engagement or communion with God and then there's this com- complaint dimension and the summer Christian so it's like a two by two taxonomy there and the idea is the summer Christian experience is that there's communion and engagement with God but it's relatively worry free it's relatively distress free it's it's pretty convicted and optimistic that's the summer Christian. But there's this other space where there's still engagement with God, um, still communion with God. But it's but that exp- engagement is you know characterized by a degree of relational distress or or doubt or lament or complaint. Um, and that seems to be a paradoxical space, you know, given the other assumption that these things are antithetical. The winter Christian experience can seem to some people as like that's not possible to be engaged and, and connected to God, and at the same time having doubts about God and having questions about God and anger about God. Um, but if you look at Scripture and you look at the history of Christianity, um, you see that these two things actually aren't antithetical, but they do hang together. And, and I call that the winter Christian experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the thing I would say about that experience for somebody who's deconstructing is... Um, the complaint, the doubt, like the goal isn't to somehow like quiet all of those things to kind of find some answers because sometimes some of these things are not, you're not going to get an answer. Like if you have questions about the problem of evil, um, I, I don't think there's a book I can hand you or an answer I can give you like I tried to give here that is going to be ultimately satisfactory. Mm-hmm. And so so we tend to, but that's the dimension we tend to want to work. We, we, we tend to want to somehow work the doubt, work the lament work the problem of evil and what i'm suggesting is maybe we kind of leave that alone a little bit because the model i'm suggesting has this other dimension which is the engagement communion dimension mm-hmm. 
the danger of deconstruction in my estimation is is when that engagement with god starts falling off right so the complaint becomes increasingly disengaged from church and relevant to our conversation we stop praying we stop reading scripture we still have all our complaints right you know i have all my questions about the bible I have all my questions about prayer. But we lose the intentionality. Yeah. We have all of our problems with the church. So the complaint is high, but it's in creating disengagement. Mm -hmm. And to me, that moves you from the winter Christian space to what I call the, cr the critic mm -hmm. space. So the, the, a simple way to say it, to go back to a kind of a love relationship metaphor to bring us full circle, like if I have a problem with my wife um, and I'm talking to you about it, you know, Jackson, well, like that's not healthy, mm -hmm. right? Like if you have a complaint, you need to take it to her, right? That's healthy. Mm -hmm. So, so having the complaint is not the problem. It's, it's the engagement dimension. And to me, that's what I would suggest to anybody who's deconstructing right now is listen, your complaints are legit and there's nothing on this podcast that's going to somehow like make those complaints evaporate. So don't think you're going to get some sort of answer but pay real attention to the engagement dimension are you are you taking your complaint outside of the love relationship um or are you taking that complaint through prayer through continued wrestling with scripture because that's what is the name israel means the one who wrestles with god mm -hmm. so so wrestle like like engage wrestle that that's the journey it's you're not weird for having the complaints so, so work that engagement dimension. And I think prayer is a perfect example of we can become critics of prayer or we can engage in lament, which is a form of prayer, right? That's what lament is. It's complaining, but it's engaged. And so that's what I would suggest for the deconstructing is to um, maybe quit obsessing about the complaints and getting all your answers and do the intending, the orthopraxy, the engagement, mm -hmm. um, take those complaints to the to that relationship well, i think that was good that was really good the full circle i think it summed it up really well good well awesome well i appreciate you coming on this is a really really good talk that was fun thank you Thank you guys so much for listening to this uh, episode of the Spiritual Reconstruction Podcast. If you guys want to listen to the next episode of the podcast, depending on when you're listening to this episode, it may already be out or not. I'll be releasing them weekly. So again, thank you guys so much for listening and I'll see you next time.